welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. This is the Investing Power Hour, number 42, closing in on the one-year anniversary in a few months here. My name is Brett Schaefer, and I'm here with Ryan Henderson. As always, I do not have our script loaded up for the entry or the introduction to the show, so I'm just going to wing it. But uh, this show, what even is it? We come up with news items. We riff. We Anything riff and stuff. everything. We I got have, some good stuff. Yeah, we have some fun stuff today. And we might not hit everything. And it might go totally off the rails into other stuff that whatever we want to talk about. But it's just going to be investing focused, finance focused, business focused. It goes live on YouTube every Thursday. You can watch the replays on YouTube or as the majority of you do, listen on the podcast, which releases Sunday mornings. Let me also Ryan. add something. If... You're listening to this right now, and you want to be a viewer, or you want to ask questions, and we just do it at a really shitty time, because we do this at like four o'clock on the West Coast on Thursdays. You know, most people are probably busy at that point. Try to reach out to us, whether it's email, chitchatmoneypodcast at gmail.com, or Twitter, whatever, and give us a time that you think would work well, because we're we're open to input. We don't, we don't have a fixed time here, uh, but we want something that uh, listeners would actually be able to tune into. Exactly. It makes it fun when it's interactive. We do get a couple of people on here and some people watching the replays, but it's really fun when we get people asking questions on the topics as well. Let's hit some uh, uh, new, not news items, uh, stuff we want to talk about before the show starts. If you're a regular listener, make sure to subscribe to our free newsletter for our not so deep dive episodes. That is the best way to keep up with the show is to subscribe to the free newsletter. It's through Substack. The link is in the show notes. Do that if you want to keep up with the episode and you're a new listener. And if you enjoy the show, give us a review on either Spotify or Apple Podcasts. That is the best way to support us besides listening. Today's episode is presented by Stratosphere, the best web-based research terminal for company-specific metrics like KPIs, segment revenues, and many other things. I can tell you for a fact, we're going to be using them for Netflix, I bet, when we cover them on their earnings report. And because they always have fascinating KPIs, we're going to take a look for my, uh, <clears throat> one of my topics, the dichotomy of the tobacco companies raising prices, lower volumes, higher margins, all that good stuff. They can really have perfect visual- visualizations here. Uh, Stratosphere has clean data for KPIs, segment data that is triple checked for accuracy, and beautiful data visualizations helping save you time and frustration digging through SEC filings. We use Stratosphere as our investing home screen, and you can too for free by going to stratosphere.io. That is stratosphere.io. Ryan, why don't you start? I'm going to turn off the lights in the background because as you can kind of see, they're a bit too bright, but why don't you get started on the topics here? Yeah, so uh, where to begin? Microsoft laid off people, which is uh, I don't. We discussed this on our last. We we did not Microsoft for not so deep dive, and I know Brett, you were just away from the headphones, but we're, I'm talking about the Microsoft layoffs. We talked about the business what two weeks ago, roughly, and the business is operating fine. I mean, they they are doing. I would say probably the best. They've pro- they're probably the most resilient of the big tech companies over the last year or so. Maybe not stock wise, but performance wise. Um, yet they're reducing. They they sent out a memo that said we're planning to reduce the workforce by ten thousand employees by the end of twenty twenty three. That's roughly five percent of their staff. Um, the cuts are reportedly centered around Hololens and Microsoft Edge. Microsoft Edge is their web browser that they're trying to. Grow. Yeah, that was an interesting one. I, both those ones were surprising. I, w- I wouldn't have guessed that. 
the HoloLens I could see. They're also cutting some jobs at Bethesda, which is one of their game studios, and there was some other subsidiary that I'm not as familiar with. Uh, but it, the web browser thing to me was interesting because it's an area where they had put a lot of resources, and I'd seen just purely based on commentary. Um, internally, they seemed to think that that was going to be additive to the ecosystem. But it sounds like maybe the moat around Google Chrome is just simply too much to really fight against, um, even on your own hardware products. So that would—that's kind of—I might be reading too too far into this, but if this is something where they were supposed to be investing heavily um, and they're pulling back or, or laying off people in that, in that area, to me, it screams, they, they weren't seeing the traction that they were hoping for. Also, I know they use, we learned this today from someone, I think it was Mads Capital, which big thank you. Cause uh, huge value add on Twitter. If, if you're in the big tech space or cloud in general, I recommend reading what he's got to say. He mentioned that Microsoft's browser, search browser, was powered by Chromium anyways, which is like the back-end side of the search. So it's I I think it's fair to say that kind of solidified my belief that Google's moat in search isn't going anywhere. Um, the Chrome, uh, the execution on Chrome, I think, under is underrated for solidifying that moat. Yeah. Really, they really... Yes. They really took over the market there. What was what it, it like 10, 15 years ago on that Chrome market share? I think that's when they launched. I think I read something that had like 3 billion Chrome users and they use something like that. It's pretty insane. Uh, anyway, um, the other thing I was going to mention about this, Microsoft did not need to do this. This was not a need thing. For Meta, there are maybe parts of the business where they needed to cut. Amazon, there's probably parts of the business where they needed to cut because they were hemorrhaging cash. Um, Google probably didn't need it. Apple probably didn't need it. I don't know if Apple even did it. Um, but this, we talked about it a couple of weeks ago where it's like, there's a lot of companies now that can just hide behind, well, macro problems, and then they can cut their worst performers or they can cut 5% of their staff that they, they think is kind of waste anyways. And so we, and for the last two years, we've been talking about how much bloat we think there is at probably a lot of these big tech companies. Maybe they were just waiting for the right time to reduce staff because now, micro, I mean, no one cares if Microsoft did this. If Microsoft did this two years ago, everyone would be concerned. Yeah, it is. It's hard to read through the tea leaves, I think, but Unlike some of the other tech companies, Microsoft seems to be more prudent about, okay, we're spending this money. We're not getting the return. It doesn't, our business is going fine, but this actual thing isn't actually, isn't going that well. So we're going to cut it. Unlike Amazon, unlike Google, unlike Facebook, um, I guess Apple's a bit more secretive, so it's hard to tell. I, uh, I think you got to, that's a big positive for Microsoft that they're just more prudent across things. I think the HoloLens division may have got, well, it definitely hasn't gotten the commercial adoption. I know they had that giant military contract that I think might be gone now. I'm not exactly sure. I, I read some headline about that. And then Microsoft Edge, maybe it just wasn't as successful. All right, we got to pull back. It's not a big deal. I mean, yeah, maybe they're... it may be a big deal for the business, but if they're not seeing the success, you're, you're not gonna, just going to throw good money after bad over and over and over, kind of like we've seen with Amazon with Alexa over the years. Uh, Alphabet has done that plenty of times. I can't think of any examples right now. And then Meta, <laughs> more recently, which is the one people have been talking about for the last year. Why there's don't? A, and, there's and a couple of comments that okay. basically say uh, kind of the, I, I think, the same sort of sentiment we were trying to express, which is uh, someone says they, they fired the rotten apples that we hired, that they hired during the pandemic that weren't productive. Everybody will start firing rotten apples. Great timing to do so. Yeah, I think you're right. I'm guessing. I think you're you're doing that in all environments, though. But maybe it was exacerbated because of the the remote hiring. Yeah. The other part that I wanted to take away from this is they they said they expect a ten thousand person reduction in the workforce. So by the end of 2023, that's not saying they're going to fire 10,000 and then replace them with 10,000 new employees that they think are higher performers. They're they're actually reducing the workforce. Um, 
I don't know, but people weren't doing it at the same magnitude over the last two years. Of the layoffs? Yeah, I think maybe... Okay, here's what I meant, is that you're generally... What did he call it? Getting rid of the rotten apples that aren't productive. I think generally most companies are doing that, but maybe the tech companies, because growth was so strong, everything was so profitable, they didn't need to do that. And now we're getting to a point where they're more mature and we just got to be more... um, like they gotta, they just they just gotta be a bit more efficient. Uh, but why why don't we go to Netflix earnings? Because I know we talk about layoffs a lot. I was about to say, I feel like we talk uh, that's about the, tech layoffs every week. Yeah, and I know people don't want to just hear that over and over again. I'm gonna load up their investor relations page. Yeah, it was uh, share the good screen. I, don't, I didn't. I I just glanced at it, so maybe we can kind of do a live look. I read the shareholder up. letter already. It was. Uh, I mean, it's good. Reed Hastings is is moved on, I guess, to executive chairman. Oh, really? Yeah, the last last bullet point there. Ted Sarandos and Greg Peters are now the co-CEOs. Um, I, it sounds like from the rest of the commentary in the shareholder letter that that was already how they were operating internally, and now they're just finally announcing it to the public. Um, but... I think the big things here, the big takeaways for me at least, membership growth was really strong. And I thought their content, and my personal, and this is subjective, I thought their content slate sucked. And yet they had a really good uh, membership additions this quarter. Also, the ad supported tier seems to have been pretty successful, at least in terms of just the launch. I know there, there's. Did they more- give any numbers on the ad offering? Mm, I don't think they, I didn't look through any of the tables that in depth, but at the bottom, they were like, they mentioned that they think it's uh, as high value as their ad free offering. And then um, I don't think there's, I kind of think, I kind of think if they didn't give any, maybe it's too early because it hasn't been very long. I kind of think if they, don't have any numbers on the ad thing. They haven't done a press release. You know how the Netflix always leaks stuff to the press release if they're going, they're doing well. Or excuse me, they always leak stuff to the press if they're doing well. I kind of think the advertising thing might be, the advertising tier might not be as successful as they're they're making it out to be because we would they would have bragged about a number if they hit a number. Uh maybe. I would, uh, yeah, I guess you could be right just because it's not some sort of a competitive secret. Like they're not trying to hide how well they're doing with it because pretty much every other service on streaming is already ad supported in some capacity. Um, but I don't, maybe they'll give some, some numbers on the conference call. I don't really know. The, the other part, um, this kind of page sharing, I don't know how they're going to roll that out, but I, I mean, Consumers are no longer going to get a free lunch in terms of uh, being able to mooch accounts, which will be unfortunate for me. Um, that that should be accretive, though. It might their their number of you can definitely see their vol- hour or volume of whatever listening hours going down, but it could definitely uh, that's got to be helpful for for subs. One thing I see here is in 2023 they expect three billion dollars in free cash flow uh, at current FX uh, foreign exchange rates. What do you think about that? It seems like they're the only one that's profitable now, which is quite interesting. It's flipped over the last few years. I mean, what's the, uh, what are they at today? They were 1.6 billion the well, last I think that, year. I think that whatever the Netflix moniker is, is out the window. Yeah, it's more of a valuation game here and a future growth game. Everybody. Yeah. My thing is, I still think they're probably close to saturation. I think growth is I'm guessing in terms of just pure member growth, I would guess that it's going to be low single digits over the next five years annually. Um, So kind of how are they going to drive revenue beyond that? That's kind of what I was getting in reading through this was they're pulling a lot of different levers, both with the ad supported tier and the paid sharing stuff. And then the international expansion as well. Um, now I think they would counter 
by looking at this chart right here. And I, 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 I tend to agree with you, but they have the share of viewing for just TV uh, worldwide in December 2022. In the US, they're at approximately 8%. And it looks like all streaming, what does that number say? Maybe 35%, Ryan? Something like that, 35, 40%. And then the rest is still linear. And the big question is, does linear completely die? What do you think? I think there's still a lot of people that are linear accounts that have Netflix. Like, well, no, no, this is just viewing hours. Oh, um, I don't know. I, I think the U.S. is probably pretty mature, like in terms of. I, I think that's probably where they're going to stay. Really, I would. Do you really think? I mean, yeah. There's. Well, if you look some, at the, if you look at younger people, it's definitely. Excuse way that that's way different than what it is in this chart. Yeah, well, maybe, but it's it's. Uh, I mean, yes, less time spent on linear, but it's way more competitive now too. Like YouTube, YouTube TV, HBO. Like, I'm I'm kind of talking anecdotally, but way less time in my experience is spent on Netflix these days than maybe I spent a year ago or two years ago. No, I agree. The- we- what do you think of the YouTube competition? That's, I think, the big question for Netflix. Yeah, I think between YouTube and YouTube TV, I mean, they already have, if I'm not mistaken, the uh, greater percentage of, of time spent or engagement. So it's, I don't It's pretty I mean, close. I yeah, it's about the same on CTV. Yeah. And what percentage of account, uh, households in the US have moved to streaming over linear? I think it's more than 50%. Obviously, there's still yeah. some low-hanging fruit, but I don't... Well, here's a I just look thing. at this and think, like... Go ahead. Members are going to grow... Members are going to grow at a low rate, would be my thought. Yeah, and they, they, they've succeeded on, a, on ARPU, average revenue per user. But here's something that kind of concerns me in the quarter. Because they... I forget what the number was, but they were bragging about... Or not bragging, obviously. They talk about the, uh, the number of subscribers that grew... Uh, globally year over year, but if we look at UCAN, which is just North America, the paid memberships were 75.2 million in Q4 last year. This year, it's down to 74.3 million. And yeah, it's up quarter over quarter. But and ARPU grew 10%. But I wonder... That's what I mean. It's, I mean, that's I, I, what I'm just saying. Wanna, is like, yeah, like, yeah, I think it's they're just, gonna- it, it hasn't shown up in the financials yet, but it might in the next few years. I think the majority of revenue growth from here on out is gonna is not going to come from member growth. Or at least, it's well, gonna, it's going to come from finding either new ways to monetize ad supported, and maybe maybe that change the math's going to change with the ad supported tier because you'll get members that are like, well, maybe they're not lower ARPU, but they're lower. They think they are. So I guess, well, I guess then maybe member growth is. I, I don't see our. I don't see the ad supported tier being that prominent in the U.S. It's probably more for the international markets, but they got to find new ways to drive it other than just purely having good content and signing up new subscriptions because it's a way more competitive market than it was three years ago. And the advertising thing, again, we talk about YouTube and how it's really grown time spent on CTV over the last what would you say four or five years, Ryan. I don't have the chart in front of me, but as they go to advertising supported and as all these streamers go to advertising supported, they are converging, especially if they start doing free ad supported TV uh, streaming channels. You're competing very heavily with YouTube at that point. But on the flip side, we look at uh, what am I seeing here on EMEA, which is Europe, Middle East, Africa paid memberships were up 3.2 million in the quarter, Latin America up almost 2 million and then APAC all, almost 1.8 million in the quarter. So pretty steady growth across those areas. It's, it's really the, the, the North American market that's hurting them. Although we look at ARPU and APAC, it's down 17% year over year. Yeah, I mean, I think it's still... Go, go, to, the, go to the last slide. The last one? Or up higher? No, keep going. Up higher? Nope. No, no, down, no, down, down, lower, down, down. Okay, sorry. Yeah, 
I can't uh, read up, 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 Sorry. Go to the stock performance chart that they have. Oh, there. this one. All right. I think this is such a brag at the end of the call or at the end of the letter. And they do this at the end of every annual letter. But they go through it and then they say, all right, we just put this in because we have to. Don't worry. Uh, go ahead and check out the long-term results. That is astounding cumulative results. Pretty darn good execution. That's what durable revenue growth will do with good unit economics. And I know this probably frustrates people that listen to the show and don't watch. So I'll explain it. This year, Netflix's or the last one-year performance of the stock, Netflix is down 51%. NASDAQ is down 33% and the S&P 500 was down 18 Over the last 10 years, Netflix annualized performance 36% versus S&P 500's 13 So the cumulative return since IPO for Netflix, 27,422%. I mean, that is, uh, and it is, and maybe it's a different point in time, but uh I find it funny that people still seriously question this management team. Yeah. And yeah. the strategy. Yeah. Well, I mean, hey, you were just questioning some of it. No, you weren't questioning the strategy. You're questioning how big they can get. But yeah, I wonder, why, here, here's the question. What do, why the co-CEOs? Well, I don't know. It works. Uh, they, they seem to have some sort of reason to do it internally. Um, but the other thing is, I don't think, just for the record, I'm not questioning the management team. I just think, and they, they've they kind of shown this, they're going to have to drive revenue in new ways beyond just pure member growth. So, And I think they can do it. I think this can also be profitable. They've now proven that. Um, I look forward to Alex Morris's write-up on, as he always does. It's also... Always the earnings report that gets the most coverage because it's the first tech one of the season. Yep, first non-finance finan- <clears throat> financials. What do you think about this? Should they acquire uh, whose stock is in the tank? Ubisoft or however you pronounce it. No, three billion, four billion dollars. It's only it's a year of cash flow. No, I don't think so. I think it would be. Having the right permanent rights to Assassin's Creed would be worth much more than $3 billion just for the linear content. Yeah, they got to execute, but it could be the next, like, it could be just as popular as James Bond, I think, on movies and TV. It's essentially the same Maybe, thing. Maybe, but if they just, okay, if all they bought was the Assassin's Creed rights, sure. But buying Ubisoft is not just buying the Assassin's Creed rights. And I, I, it's buying that, more. Would, that it's would be buying a tough more. pill to swallow of saying I paid $3 billion for the Assassin's Creed rights. I think there's well, shareholders would definitely have a problem with that. That seems like a lofty price to pay. Well, they have more than just that. The, uh, and I remember being have. very concerned looking at that business. Well, yeah, because it's mismanaged, but they got good assets. The uh, I, I think it would be better to if they were going to spend $3 billion on gaming, I think it would be better spent on an acquisition like that than internal. Why? Because there's a lot of catch-up period to building up the culture of, uh, of a gaming content. Though, you know, we've talked about before the history of how no company that started out in linear media or, or visual or whatever TV and movies have been able to make their own game studio successful. So I kind of think you need maybe Ubisoft is the most broken studio and has no and and something's really it's tough there, you know, something's really going wrong there, but they do have a long track record of building games that people like and the merging of all this stuff I think can be very very uh, profitable, <clears throat> but you can't. You you need a. You need a. You just need the the gaming IP to do it. Yeah, my my gripe would be like, I don't even know if they're really going after that market. Yeah, AAA console that might just. I would rather have them inch their way in 
until they see some actual traction, then take a big gulp on Ubisoft and potentially just destroy capital. Yeah, well, either way, they're destroying capital. If they're inching their way in with no success. Not nearly as much, though. Uh, who knows? I mean, the uh, I think probably going after mobile the way they've been going after it is probably going to lead to less value destruction than spending 4 or $5 billion to acquire a massive gaming studio that seems to be... It also might just require a totally different like type of manager. Like it's just a different business. Mm, that's a good point. I don't know. It's all I've I've like played those scenarios out in my head where some big uh, gaming company gets acquired by a tr- like a traditional media format, not interactive. It sounds good in theory, but I worry about that actually happening. I mean, the, yeah, because the benefits you can get from the relationship can be, you can have that just from like a licensing or partnership or relationship to have the IP to make whatever you make as visual content. You really need to let them act autonomously to make their games on their own. But my thought is they could just throw out a lowball offer for Ubisoft that's really higher than the current share price. But that's a whole. Ubisoft has got the family running it that might not even care. It's all another thing. The Gamots. Yeah. The French family. They might not even care about getting acquired. All right. Next topic. Looks like you got dating app app updates. Yeah. Uh, So news came out or an article came out this week that Hinge, which is a popular uh, dating app among what is it? Gen Z? Technically, millennial, I would say, yeah, post college, post college single people, um, is reportedly rolling out a $60 a month subscription. The current one, I believe, costs $35. So, this is a significant price increase. Um, for reference, and this is Hinge, um, the average revenue per user at Hinge in the third quarter of last year was $25 versus. $20 $20 the year prior. So they'd already been slightly increasing prices. Now, if you're thinking, well, if it sells for a $35 subscription, why is it $25? They also have a lot of a la carte purchases. Um, so you can buy like extra likes for like 99 cents. I forget the exact terms on it, but yep, average, all the transactions. Yep. And it's average revenue per paying user. So it's just anyone that's paid, average that out, you know, divided by all the revenue that made. My thought here. And I heard a lot of people like, people love to dunk on this stuff. Like investors are like, who would pay for $60? Like a They're, lot of people, like yeah. <laughs> Look maybe at the you've been married for 20 years, but a lot of people would pay this money. You would pay unless, uh, unless you were 6'4 and, uh, well, maybe not 6'4, unless you were 6'2 and chiseled on both, the, on both your face and your body. Uh, it doesn't, you, you, will, you will likely be paying unless you want to have no matches. The other thing is, okay, the bigger the platform becomes, the more valuable the subscription, so the more they can raise prices. Um, Especially if you think that they're rolling it out in Europe, my thought here would be that um, the platform becomes much more valuable when it's in Germany and the UK and all the different countries, as opposed to just one, because the subscription is more... I, I well, for young people traveling around, yeah. for young people traveling around the continent, you want right. a trip to Italy, right? You know, it's yeah. really it's it's different than yeah. That's like just going on a trip to California. The other part the is the bigger the platform gets, I think the more you have to do to probably make your account stand out to have success on these apps, which often requires paying, um, or dramatically changing your looks the easier solution in that case would be pain um so yeah i think and the other part is this is the postgraduate demographic it's not tinder tinder, tinder. does college yeah main, main is college yeah sorry i keep interrupting you're doing you're saying exactly what is on my mind tinder is probably more for the have fun crowd i would say hinge is more 
the existential crisis crowd where you're getting to the point now where dating is no longer, eh, you know, let's see what, yeah, it's, <laughs> existential we, it's crisis. I need to find something now and I'm going to pay to do it. I think there's tons of price and power on match group side for hinge. Yeah. To be fair, it's not all their users, but that that's definitely True. more than, yeah. If you have the X, the way you described it, it makes sense. The existential crisis crowd is going to go to Hinge first. Yeah, they definitely have more pricing power there because you have one, popularity in urban areas in the United States. Most of those young professionals are going to have a lot of income coming in. The ARPU there, say, I think can be quite strong. But you also have this other note about Tinder thinking about a mega price increase to $500 a month. I know this is just rumored they're not actually launching this yet, so they may have been trying to test the waters among... Yeah people because i know companies like to do that but what are your thoughts yeah so this was kind of thrown in that bloomberg article as well match groups apparently testing a 500 a month subscription for tinder now i just bashed people for hating on the hinge premium pricing offering i will be the basher now if you're spending 500 a month on tinder you've got to find a new hobby there's i maybe there is and obviously they're testing this for a reason. Maybe there are people that are such serial daters on Tinder that they'll pay a ridiculous price to have it. But I think it, that's it, crazy. Yes. Well, yeah. Yeah. It is crazy. And maybe they throw out five hundred for a reason. Maybe it's actually gonna be slightly lower. But I think you gotta look at it through the lens of the management team now. The management team is all from mobile gaming and the, the initiatives they're trying out are basically to make even more a la carte purchases, which is shorter term subscriptions, which are basically a la carte, um, which I think makes sense. Say you're going on some trip for a week to somewhere you want to buy. So you, you, you don't want to buy a full subscription for a month. You can buy it for a couple of days. That makes sense. But also what makes the mobile gaming uh, popular is wealthy people who are fans of the game paying a ton of money uh, with what they call the whale spenders. So I think testing this out makes sense, although in dating, it might not actually work as well as in mobile gaming. But I think that's where they're coming from, is they're taking that mobile gaming mindset and applying it to apps that are kind of similar to mobile gaming, but just a different sector. And that's why they're also testing advertising as well, because if Tinder is more of a... If the people are spending a lot of time on Tinder but it's a lot more casual and maybe they're not actually serious. The advertising could work as well. So there's a lot of dynamics there. Uh, but yes. <laughs> to be fair, we might sound bullish because uh, as a full disclosure, the, these are stock. We, it's a stock we own uh, now and stock we might own in the future. Uh, so full disclosure. I, uh, it is a stock we own now. The, did you say it might be? or It, it, it might be. One, I said it might be one we own in the future as well. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, I, I like that they're experimenting with all this stuff. Bernard Kim's the new CEO, and he's kind of he's kind of got to prove it, I guess, to I think a lot of investors. But um, I I don't see any reason why the sixty dollar a month subscription for Hinge is anything but additive to ARPU. Did you see what the features would be? Kind of. They briefly reported it in the Bloomberg article. It was stuff like um, like higher promotion in people's likes. So, so for um, the, yeah. So it's obviously it's for guys. But yeah, yeah some people have like uh, obviously a lot of likes, and you can't necessarily see all the likes unless you like. And I haven't been on the app in a while, but the way well, remember, it's more of a it's more of a woman problem. If, yeah, uh, basically, you're, <laughs> there's all these guys vying for the interest of women, and if you pay for the subscription, you get uh, your like you're, gets you're, promoted. It's more visible to the uh, to you, the likey. You go to the front of the line. Most it's a single file line for the person. It is. And yeah, you, it's you, you get promoted. Good. You get promoted to the front of the line. Yeah, and I think it was like better recommendations or something like that uh for like people that'll see your profile basically your account just be amplified in general mm, interesting 
Well, we wrote on our, um, I wrote it, but it's really our authorship on our match group uh, pitch thesis, uh, which you can find on our funds website, that people would pay upwards of $1,000 for dating if they had the money because it's such a fundamental need for humans. Uh, so we'll see if we're, <laughs> we'll see if we're proven right with this Tinder one. But let's move on to the next topic. Why don't we do, it's the mid-roll here. Why don't we do a little, little Stratosphere one, a little Stratosphere mid-roll ad that I think will be very fun to talk about. And that is Altria's, let me share the screen here. Uh, volume declines. Explain what Altria is for the people that don't know. Oh, right. They own Philip Morris. So the largest, actually they own Philip Morris USA. So they're the largest cigarette manufacturer in the United States with approximately 40% market share. Let me share the screen here. Again, go to stratosphere.io. It's free. Ryan, you can see that, right? For anyone listening, this is basically tracking. Uh, and this is one of their KPIs things that they add on here for companies that disclose a lot of things each each year. And as everyone's well aware of, total cigarette shipments or volumes have declined steadily over the last few decades, if we look at 2013, they were at about 100. Oh, wait, here it is 129,000. Last 12 months, we're at 87,000. And what's funny is that in 2020, what well, made that funny, a bit depressing, is <laughs> the, the decline flatlined, uh, which again, I know is a tough year for everyone. Some, some to take the edge off, apparently. Yeah. Maybe, uh, maybe if people think the world's going to hell, uh, as a lot of the perma bears out there, in the finance world think maybe <laughs> ultra group will benefit as people get more nervous. But the big takeaway is that shipment volumes have declined 4.4% a year for the last 10 years. However, if you look at the... Let me pull up some different charts here on their income statement. If you look at their revenue, and they've, had, they've actually sold off a business, so that's why revenue is slightly down. It would be flatlined. Uh, revenue is actually up, compounded at 2% a year. And if we look at operating income, it's compounded at, let me scroll back up there, 4.4% a year. So if we basically have volumes declining by 4.4% a year, operating income growing at 4.4% a year, obviously we're seeing margin expansion and raising prices, which is a well-known phenomenon for anyone that smokes or anyone that follows these companies. Here's my question to you, Ryan. One, and we've discussed this before, one, can this dynamic of declining, price, declining volumes and raising prices continue this decade? And can you envision a world where cigarette volumes flatline as, uh, I guess it's kind of similar to what we talked about with streaming. Like, is there, you know, will linear ever flatline and the market share kind of retain itself? Will cigarettes maybe... It, globally or in the US ever flatline? I kind of think it's a fascinating question. I don't think so. You don't, you think, boom, eventually it's over. Zero. Not for longer than like a three-year period. The, I mean, we saw some sort of flatline through COVID, but the... Yeah, right. That, that doesn't count to me. Yeah. And you showed the last, I think it was 10 years, something like that. These cigarette volumes have been declining for like the last 30 years. I think if you would have, you could have said at any point during that, are wood volumes flatline? I think the, the future is probably going to look a lot like the last 30 years, at least the next 10 years. And there's so many other alternatives now to cigarettes that, uh, no, I, I just don't see a scenario where they flatline for like a five-year period. That just doesn't seem likely. Do I think the trend can continue financially? To a certain point, maybe. But I think the better question is, what would you pay? What's the right price to pay for a business that's almost... Like, what's the terminal value? Like, imagine there wasn't any other investments here. Well, the, term, the terminal value of everything is zero. So. Imagine... This is only the cigarette business, and you know volumes decline by five percent. They raise ten, prices by ten percent each year. 
I'm, I'm just throwing rough numbers out there, mm-hmm. which exacerbates the decline further because you continue to raise prices to a certain point. Can they do that for 10, 15 more years? Are people going to be paying $70 for a pack of cigarettes? Well, I don't to, think to they're, re- they're not paying replace? that much right now. I, I, Marlboro is nine bucks where we are. I don't so know. I think they could raise it to 20 over the next decade. Wouldn't be, I wouldn't be shocked. What is that annual, annual increases? What is that probably like 7% a year? No clue, but sounds Price about increases. right. Yeah, they could. But I think they're going to lose customers along the way. Not only from them literally dying, but I think there's so many alternatives now. Yeah, I think, look, that makes sense. But that was the bear case 15 years ago, too. <laughs> so it's like, dang, you know. Yeah, that's why I asked what's, I the, mean, right, and it makes what's sense. the right yeah. price for it. Because if they're going to pay you out 10% a year in pure cash dividends, that might be worth it. If you think this thing ships no cigarettes in 10 years or is shipping half the volume that it is now, if they're shipping that 10% dividend, yeah, if they're shipping half the volume that they are now, revenue could be flat and operating income could be up. I wouldn't be surprised, which is interesting. Then I would say 10 times, 10 times operating income is the right. Yeah. A fair price to pay. If you think volumes would be half of what they are, and operating income will be exactly where it is today in ten years, I guess it depends what kind of return you want. But it also depends if you're in a taxable account or not, since a lot of this is, di- excuse me, dividends. Uh, yeah, it's also interesting with their uh, what should we call it, the non-cigarette stuff that's growing in volumes. It's not nearly as big, but it will be interesting to see with what, what, what they can do with the pouches because will that get, as a percentage of cigarette volumes, could it get to 10%? Is it going to get to 20%? I think that's a huge question for the durability of this business. Well, if it doesn't have to grow in order to grow as a percentage of cigarette volumes. Well, that's right. Yeah, but I'm talking about replacing their revenue because it's not nowhere near the size yet to replace their revenue or maybe even earnings. But it could get there soon. But that's a harder bet to make because you're betting on really fast growth. I would much rather. Um, I hate talking about the entire can- or the entire tobacco space or anything within nicotine because it just frustrates me that we had such a gem in Swedish match. The Philip Morris okay. stole it. Yeah. Um, Philip Morris International. For anyone confused, I would be a little. A little more scared owning, I think, anything that didn't have a really prominent, profitable alternative to cigarettes in their portfolio. So um, the one that I, I mean, it's Philip Morris International now that's got um, Zinn, right? So yeah, plus uh, I forget the name of the other thing that's very popular as well. I forget. Uh, Jewel not, vape, whatever. No, no, a heat not burn thing. Plus, blue uh, is that the thing? No, IQOS. Remember that thing? Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. I forget what the numbers are on that, but apparently that's doing well too. All right, let's move on to the next topic as we got 15 minutes left. Sometimes these go quickly. It's okay, kinda... a couple of things I found interesting. Um, Roku. There was like this report that came out that they are. Apparently, by far, the number one way people choose to cut the cord. Um, So there was like some survey, which I know were survey haters, but Cord Cutter News surveyed 2,000 people, basically asking, how did you cut the cord? Most of them said Roku. Um, The second, which was like half of as many, uh, basically Roku was twice as popular of a choice as fire TV. Um, that, yeah, those, I, those negative 30% gross margins, they, they gotta, they gotta count for something when you sell the stuff at such a loss. That's what, that's what blows my mind. It's like, I go back and forth probably, I would say two or three times a year and think, 
this could be a huge business. It could be the operating system of the CTV world, or it could be completely irrelevant and they hold no power. Yeah. Like I, I saw a chart the other day that their account growth has still been really solid, right? I think they passed 70 million accounts. Then on the other hand, I see them having zero negotiating leverage with YouTube and YouTube's talking about having streaming channels within the YouTube app on CTV and the ad supported ones and then having the ability to buy streaming channels within the YouTube app and kind of making the YouTube app the home, you know, the home screen. And I think, okay, Roku's going to have a tough time competing with that as they try to monetize their advertising business, build up the Roku channel, which is in a really tough place competitively versus YouTube. So I see that and I'm like, okay, they're growing accounts. Great. But we're, we're, there's, it's, they're not playing a very easy game. So there's like a path for them winning and being a good business, but why play? Like why buy Roku over? And again, some people might be morally against this, but why would you buy Roku over Altria at an 8.5% dividend yield? It just doesn't make sense. Obviously at the right morals. price, right? Morals, morals, <laughs> morals is fair, but say Altria or anything equivalent to that, that's way more durable. Why would you buy that at when Roku's not training at a dirt cheap multiple? Yeah, I don't know. It's a tough one. Um, other things, interactive brokerage report earnings crushed it, I would say. Net interest income basically doubled year over year. Um, so good for them. Luis, we just had on Luis Sanchez, um, who basically gave a wonderful pitch for why it's going to be a, a much a good investment over the next few years. And uh, I think that's playing out exactly as he said. So part of it was net interest income. And for reference, that is interactive brokers, IBKR. It should be like four shows older than this on the podcast feed. Yeah. Other things I read, I'm doing a little, this is a little pledge to myself. I'm, I'm studying it publicly here. So I stick to it. I'm, my goal is to read one book every two weeks. That's good. one book every two weeks. A little That's personal doable. goal for me. Yeah. 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 It's, it should be doable. Um, as long as I don't, it's, it's going to, it's going to push me towards shorter books, but it's, you should say, yeah, you, we got to set a band 300 pages to 600 pages, 600 page max. Yeah. I don't want to be right. Snowball and Titan might slow me down. Uh, I think those are in the past, but anyway, um, last man standing I read, which is, uh, biography from I don't have the name here, but it's a biography on Jamie Dimon essentially in his career. And I will say it was a really good book. I recommend reading it. Uh, it's an interesting sort of tale through banking. And for one, it's fascinating on Jamie Dimon because he's a pretty, um, I found it be, to be pretty remarkable. Obviously, that's kind of the point of the book, but it also gives a really good. In illustration of the culture inside the big banks and how much management bases their performance on whether or not it's better than peers, which provides, I mean, every, like, it was like every year they were like, what was our return on equity versus Bank of America's or Bear Stearns or Goldman's or Morgan Stanley's? That's they, they literally rank themselves and then they determine whether or not it was a good job. I think Jamie Dimon did a little less so, but it sets up these horrible incentives. And you saw this before 2008, where people take insane risks to be competitors in terms of return on equity. Um, and some of the companies that were juicing their ROE in 2005 and 2006, and even 2007, uh, were um, non-existent in two years after. So it it kind of concerned me in looking, in wanting to invest in big banks because there's so much in there that the outside investor doesn't know exists. Yeah. I kind of like Bank of America because I've had like, I've had an account with them for so long. I'm always like, oh, I should switch. I never have. <laughs> and I got, but I, to your point, the investment banking side for them or anything else besides their consumer banking side, 
I, I it's just such a black box. I'll let I'll let Buffett own it. Yeah, it is. Uh, like I, I have no idea what's in the derivative segment of any of those businesses, and I mean, even Diamond, they were better positioned in '08, but they weren't immune to it either. Like they had a lot of mortgage exposure too. They were um, the yeah right. What what they say they were they weren't going to collapse. They took a bailout, but they weren't going to collapse. But it was going to be terrible for them either way. Yeah, um, they didn't need the money, uh, but they took it because it would have been stupid probably not to if everyone else was taking it. Um, and I don't, I mean, there was, they were able to, there were banks, and I can't remember the specific one that did it. So they acquired Bear Stearns. After Bear Stearns bought a bunch of exposure to the mortgage market, but I think Morgan Stanley was the one where the management was literally loading up, like tripling down on their mortgage bets in 07. Mm. Well, Goldman and JP Morgan were getting out, selling it to them. (laughs) Yeah. I know, yeah, JP Morgan slowly got out, but it affected, I mean, it had ripple effects across all the credit markets. I don't know. I, I mean, I did, I came away with a lot of admiration for Jamie Dimon. It's a um, tough industry, though. It's a tough industry, and they've been the top dog for so long that there's got to be something strangely special there. But it's just such a tough industry that you know, right? Isn't that makes doesn't that make sense? Yeah, it's, it's also. Weird. I mean, it's yeah. It's hard not to compare yourself to all the other banks when you're a big bank, but it just creates some bad incentives anyway and the, a, incentive, uh, the incentives for the employees they're attracting as well probably leads to that it's kind of a self-fulfilling cycle anyway so this is my pledge my public pledge for anyone listening i will come back every two weeks with, with a, a book. <laughs> five minute book report on uh one bullet point in the document random. here one bullet point in the document what's the what are you reading right now i started a new one called american rascal um it's about some guy, uh, Rockefeller and Vanderbilt, I think, called him like the smartest man they knew. And it was some like financier in the 1870s. Oh, he James. may have been a crook. Jay James, Gould is his name. Oh, Jay Gould, not James Hill. James Jay Gould. Yeah. Okay. Fun one. Yeah. He may have been a crook, may have been brilliant. I'm really not sure. They don't really disclose it until the end. I don't think so. Maybe I'll, I'll learn more about it, but he's a very secretive guy. It sounds like, um, but I like reading those books that are based in like the late 1800s to early 1900s. Cause it makes me appreciate like, you know, having like clean water and stuff and not having like all my siblings die from like simple illnesses. Um, yeah. It sounded awful. Yeah, so it gives me a newfound appreciation. But anyway, any other uh Well, did you see points? I was in a bit of a conundrum. I don't want to call it a conundrum, but a I kind of played myself. I did a I you don't kinda, you may not kind of cut out there for a second, but what did you oh, say? Oh, by cut out? Um slightly. Okay. Maybe, well, maybe that's just on my end, but you yeah. you played yourself, okay. So you, did you see the fake Buffett quote I tweeted? Yeah. Yeah. So I said, just because as a play on uh, when Tesla cut prices and people like to compare it to being one of the best businesses in the world, uh, there's the Buffett quote that he, the real one, what he said is essentially a good business is one that can raise prices and not have to, what do they call Hold their nose. What does he say? Hold their nose. Oh, go through a prayer session beforehand. So basically Coca-Cola. Hershey, whatever, you can raise prices willy nilly. But I flipped it as a parody quote, and I thought everyone would understand this. <laughs> right when Tesla cut prices by 20%, I said, quote, a good business is one that cuts prices by 20% and makes it up in volume. Warren Buffett, maybe I should have said Warren Buffet to make it clear that it wasn't him. Uh, but so they go like viral or anything, but it's probably the most popular tweet I've had in a long time, with it says here like over 100,000 views. And the majority were Tesla fans that took it as a serious quote and said, 
Berkshire's about to buy, load up on a stick, rocket ship, rocket ship, rocket ship, hashtag Tesla. This thing's, you know, whatever. And I was just constantly playing my feet. And I thought like, wow, they should have started playing the Curb Your Enthusiasm music in the background for me because I thought it was pretty clear that that's a fake quote. <laughs> but it, People it, was, bought it. It, it was funny either way. Yeah, it felt it felt good. I gotta say, selfishly, to trick uh, the Tesla bulls like that. But I thought people would just be clear yeah, that it's not clear that it's not a good thing to do. <laughs> we're three minutes from this being done, and we haven't talked about Tesla. Um, but I don't know. Maybe we should have like a, a Tesla alarm or something whenever we have some way. We should snap a rubber band on our wrist every time we talk about Tesla because. <laughs> can't seem to not do it no tech layoffs no tesla but since we already started went out went down this rabbit hole yeah I, I find it ridiculous the people that are saying like this was a strategic poker move like what are you talking about you, you, yeah this is it might it may have been the right thing to do but lowering prices is not uh, some strategic poker move to gain market share. Yeah, it's, I mean, yeah, they need to sell more cars. The the other thing, I hate when people quote EVs in market share. Like this is to get out ahead in market share. Like this isn't enterprise software. You can switch cars. Yeah, I know. Like, there's no. Is there really a first mover advantage here? Yeah, we'll see. Hey, look. Yeah, I. I uh... Before, yeah, I want to do one thing here. We won't have time to talk about it, but yeah, I think they report earnings next week. I hope maybe it's before the show or after, so we can save a real. We'll go through the actual report and see the numbers. But here's one. Uh, I don't know if you want to load up the chart, but it shows TikTok growth in the US user growth has stagnated and year over year growth is actually 0% and will likely, if the trend continues, go negative. What do you think? What do you think about that? I would say. Long reels and long YouTube shorts. You think that's a competitive thing or what? I kind of well. Well, we're we're about to record on Meta, and I kind of want to look. At, I tested out YouTube Shorts again. I I got it. Kind of made me like those things are psychotic. Um, I I don't. I, I it's scary. I, I never want to start using those things. They're a bit hectic, and it makes. It, it, I can see why people have anxiety watching them. Just stop watching them, guys. But if I kind of have this thought that if all of this social media or it's not really even social media anymore, if it's all converging onto just video, there's not really a competitive advantage for these upstart like TikTok besides being the first mover. And the platform with the users like YouTube is going to succeed because they already have two or three billion users. I kind of think like if it's all this video, it's not, I think YouTube is going to win. But they're probably, it's not going to be a winner take all. But I think it gives them a slight advantage if it's just, if it has nothing to do with the friends you have, it's just videos. Maybe, yeah. The other part that's worth mentioning is they got to a billion users faster than any platform ever. So I think it was inevitable that growth was going to slow quicker. But yeah, it was a blessing and a curse. Yeah. Um, yeah. I wonder if growing too fast is like the kiss of death where 100 percent agree you've got i mean what was the clubhouse if you if you grow too quickly everyone will copy you you're going to get competition from all sides look at roblox just durable steady growth yeah pandemic was quick but just durable steady growth there i think i think durable growth is the way to go which spotify even too Spotify, Netflix. Yeah. I, uh, the smart investors already know this, but I think durable growth is it, it is where it's at. All right. That's going to do it for this episode, guys. The people that tuned in, thank you. I know we had one guy who left, but either way, you can watch the replays on YouTube or just continue listening to them on Spotify. Or woman. Might not or have been a guy. Guys. Uh, yeah. Although majority of our listeners do tend to ski mail. 91%. As the data tells us. Um, but either way, thank you everyone for listening. Check out our sponsor, Stratosphere at stratosphere.io. Fantastic platform you can try for free. 
Remember, we are not financial advisors. Anything we say on the show is not formal advice or recommendation. We are general partners at Arch Capital and clients may hold securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you all for listening. The show is live every Thursday. We'll see you next time. Thank you.